As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And, we had, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Diana. Diana, it has been um, a privilege and a joy over the last four years that you've been here to see the way that you have pursued and been sensitive to God's call to, to go to the nations. We're so excited to, to see what that looks like uh, in your life. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we are continuing our series, as you can tell from the, from the candles, through uh, this, this season of Advent. Uh, maybe you're not familiar with Advent. Maybe Advent isn't something uh, that you practiced in your church growing up, or maybe you're new to church and you're wondering what's the deal with the candles and what's the deal with this, this thing called Advent. Advent is, is a season that the church has historically marked as we're remembering the first coming of Christ and as we're looking forward to his second coming. So it's kind of a dual hope. We look back at the first coming of Jesus. We look forward to his coming return. In a sense, Advent is there to remind us what time it is. Because if you don't remember what time it is, you don't remember what you're supposed to be doing at that particular time. My, my family travels a lot over the holidays. My, my uh, parents, my family lives in western New York. My wife's family lives in Orlando, Florida. So we spend a ridiculous amount of time in the car with three kids between the ages of three and seven over the holidays. So uh, pray for us if you think about it. Um, and the number one question, the number one question I get over the holidays, and if you're a parent who ever travels with kids, you understand the number one question you have to answer is, are we there yet? Literally, hundreds of times over the thousands of miles that we drive, between food being thrown around and weeping and gnashing of teeth and all of these things happening in our minivan, are we there yet? Because it's hard to wait isn't it? Especially when you're a young kid and you're confined to this car seat and you don't know what you're supposed to be doing with all of that time. But I think that there's something similar that can happen to us as followers of Jesus. We forget what time it is and we forget what we're supposed to be doing during this time. We know something big happened back there 2,000 years ago. And we know something big is going to happen someday when Jesus returns, but we don't always know what we're supposed to be doing in the meantime. 
So this is what we do. For a lot of us, we just run around frenetically trying to make something happen because we look at the world around us and it seems so broken and it seems like it needs so much service. And so what we do is we just try to run around frenetically trying to make it better. But the truth is we're kind of aimless in the way that we do it. And so what we do is we jump from cause to cause, hashtag to hashtag. But if we're honest, all of our frenetic activity masks the fact that we don't know what we're supposed to be doing with this life that God has given us. We want desperately to make it count for something, but we just don't know what that is. And so eventually what tends to happen is the pendulum swings to the other side and we burn out and we withdraw and we give up trying to change the world and we settle for this nice, safe, comfortable middle-class existence. Some of you are there right now. For some of you, that's what's coming for you. That's why we're spending this Advent season talking about global missions. Because here's the thing. If you want to know what God is doing in the world today, this is what he is doing. He is carrying out his global mission. If you want to know what God welcomes you into as you have this one life to live, to make count, this is what it is. He is welcoming you into his global mission. Today, we're going to be looking at one of the key passages from the life of Jesus, where Jesus appears to his followers, and he tells them what he is doing in the world, and he tells them how they are going to be involved in it. We're going to talk about the mission of God, picking up from last week, and three things we're going to see about God's mission in this passage today. Three truths. One, God's word promises his mission. Two, God's people proclaim his mission. Three, God's spirit empowers his mission. God's word promises his mission. God's people proclaim his mission. God's spirit empowers his mission. God's word proclaims his mission. So here's, here's what's happening in this passage. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's appeared to the disciples. They are shocked. They don't know what's going on. They're like, have we seen a ghost? Are we hallucinating? Because they weren't expecting their Messiah to die, and they certainly won't, weren't expecting him to rise from the dead, because the fact is they knew just as well as we know that dead men don't rise from the dead. And yet here's this guy that they saw, they literally saw him breathe his last breath. They saw him put in a tomb and now he is standing in front of them and he says, hey, what do you guys got for breakfast? And they give him a piece of fish and this guy who used to be dead eats the piece of fish right in front of them. And they're dumbfounded and they're shocked and they can't believe that this is happening. And then Jesus says this, verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to, un minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. It's like, hey guys, quit freaking out. Like, I told you this would happen. And I didn't just tell you this would happen. The scriptures told you this would happen. The scriptures told you that the Messiah would die and rise again and that his kingdom would extend to the ends of the earth beginning from Jerusalem. The law of Moses told you this would happen. The prophets told you this would happen. The Psalms told you this would happen. The entire corpus of the Hebrew scriptures told you this would happen. 
during this Advent season, uh, as a family, we're walking through the, the story of the Hebrew Scriptures, and we're seeing these, these key stories in the Old Testament and how they all point to Jesus. My kids absolutely love the story of the fall of humanity in Genesis 3. So like Adam and Eve, they believe the serpent, they eat the fruit. The whole world is plunged into death and destruction, okay? They love that. Like, I don't know what that says about my kids. I don't know what that says about my parenting, but they love that story. And yet, even as humanity is turning its back on God and is destroying the beautiful world that God made, there is this promise in Genesis 3.15. God is speaking to the serpent, and he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Every time, every time we talk about it, my kids jump up and down, and like my living room turns into a mosh pit. And they're like jumping up and down, pumping their fists, singing the song like, Jesus crushed Satan's head. And I had, I had to step in the other day when they were trying to act it out, and uh, my daughter was stomping on my son's head. So they, they get a little bit carried away. But there ought to be that kind of explosive joy. There ought to be that kind of joy. That ought to resonate with us when we hear that promise. Because we live in such a broken world. A world filled with pain and heartache and suffering. And we long for it to be made right. Don't you long for that? Don't you long for the day when sin and death are defeated and God makes all things new? Yesterday in this room, some friends of ours, members of our Northwest congregation, met for the funeral of their five-week-old son. And his death was completely unexpected and completely life-shattering, and they are in unspeakable pain right now. And I can't give them any easy answers, and I can't say anything to make their pain go away. I am simply crying out, God, be near to the brokenhearted. Jesus, come quickly and set all things right and make all things new. That's what I long for. That's what we long for. We long for a world where no parent ever has to bury their baby, where no child is sold into a trafficking ring where we never again have to watch Alzheimer's slowly take away the people that we love. No more death, no more pain, no more suffering, no more divorce, no more abuse, no more racism, no more injustice. I'm so tired of the brokenness of this world, and if I am honest, I am so tired of the brokenness of my own heart. The cry of our souls and the cry of humanity throughout history is that, God, this world is so broken. We are so broken. Come and make it right. Come and set us free. And the story of the Bible is the story of how God is going to do that. So Jesus says the scriptures, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, the whole thing, it is the story of humanity's longing for me. And it is my promise of how I'm going to make it right again. And it's not the story just of one tribe living in the ancient Near East. It's the promise to bring blessing and salvation to every tribe and tongue and nation. That's what the Hebrew Scriptures promised. We don't have time to read the whole Old Testament today, but I want to give you just a few passages, a few places to touch down where this promise is revealed. Genesis 12 
Verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will give you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And this is key. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth. I am blessing you so that I can bless the world through you. Isaiah chapter 2, 1,500 years after Abraham, 700 years before Jesus. Isaiah 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. And listen to this because we're going to come back to this and the word of the lord from jerusalem he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks nation shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore end of the book isaiah 52 my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted, in verse 15, and he will sprinkle many nations. The servant of the Lord is going to cleanse many nations. And how is he going to do it? Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. It's God's plan throughout the ages. His plan laid out in the Hebrew scriptures is to bless all the families of the earth in a descendant of Abraham who will die in the place of sinners and cleanse us from our sin, who will, who will be bruised by the serpent, who will taste the sting of death. But in the process, he will crush the serpent's head and he will set us free from sin and death and condemnation. And one day he will make all things new. And his plan is to send a good news of that deliverance and that salvation to the ends of the earth through his people. I often find myself wondering why Jesus didn't make all things new as soon as he rose from the dead. I mean, he's already defeated. He's already defeated Satan. He has already defeated sin and death and hell and condemnation. Why is this world still so broken? It's because his mission isn't finished. Because God's word promises his mission, but God's people proclaim his mission. That's the second thing. God's people proclaim his mission. Verse 47, And repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. See, if Jesus had ended it all after he rose from the dead, this message of salvation never would have gone to the nations, and you and I would not be sitting here. Jesus says, Matthew 24, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. That's the goal. 
That's, that's the ultimate endpoint. That's what this whole thing is moving toward. The gospel will be proclaimed to all nations. That is the final piece of the mission that God is accomplishing in the world before Jesus returns. And that's what he calls us into. Now, it's important to pay attention to the words here. He says, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed. That will be proclaimed. In other words, it will be spoken. God's people will open their mouths and share this good news. We say all the time around here that we want to serve our city and the nations with the message and the mercy of Jesus. Some churches are, are big on the message of Jesus, but they neglect the mercy of Jesus. So they'll hand you some gospel literature, but they won't lift a finger to help the poor. And that's definitely a danger. But if I'm honest, after being here for the last five and a half years, and if I look at my own heart, I think maybe the danger for us is the opposite danger. I think the danger for us might be that we're only about the mercy of Jesus and that we never open our mouths to share the message of Jesus. And, and that makes sense. Because people in our world will applaud us for that. They will stand up and clap. They will love us for doing good things. And they'll look at us and they'll say, wow, aren't those great people? Isn't that a great church? But we don't want them to say, what a great church. We want them to say, what a great God. We want them to say, what a great Savior. Because the fact is, friends, we are not the Savior our city needs. We are not the saviors that the nations need. And if we never open our mouths and share the good news of Jesus, then by default, we will only point people to ourselves. So we have to proclaim this good news. We say Soma Church exists to see the gospel change everything. The gospel means good news, and news is something that comes through words. Gospel is good news. And, and the thing is, it's not just any kind of good news. Like, this is not just good news. Like, there's a great deal on the swap, and I got to jump on that. In the ancient world, the word gospel was a word used for life-changing, history-changing, world-changing news. 490 B.C., you guys have heard of the Battle of Marathon. 490 BC at the Battle of Marathon, the Persian Empire, the strongest empire in the entire world, is, is knocking on the door of Greece, is about to invade Greece. And the Greeks get together and they fight back the Persians at the Battle of Marathon. And the Greeks triumph. And when they realize that they have defeated the Persians, they send this guy named Pheidippides, I think is how you say it, Pheidippides, and he runs 26 miles to proclaim the good news to Athens. What he does, and, and, and Herodotus calls it this in his, in, in his history, he says he is preaching the gospel. He, he gets to Athens he proclaims the victory, and then he literally drops dead of exhaustion. But that's good news. He says he preached the gospel. He proclaimed the gospel. He announced something life-changing and world-changing and history-changing that had happened because the enemy has been defeated and war is over and we've been set free and this changes everything. That's what we proclaim as followers of Jesus. The king has come. The enemy has been defeated. He has liberated us, and this changes everything. Now, do you see, proclaiming the gospel is not or ought not to be some form of cultural imperialism. It is a message of love and liberation. 
Listen to this quote from Penn Jillette. If you don't know who Penn Jillette is, uh, he's a famous magician. So not musician, magician, the hats, the rabbits, the wands, all that stuff. So he's a magician, pen and teller. He's also an outspoken atheist. Pendula, I've heard him say that he is so hostile to Christianity that he won't let Christians in his home because he doesn't like them influencing his kids. But listen to what he says about evangelism, or as he calls it, proselytizing. Listen to what he says. He says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's really not worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Now remember, guys, that's not, a, that's not a Christian saying this. This is someone who rejects Christianity, and yet he says, if you really believe that this thing is true, then the only loving thing is to tell people about it, even if it makes it socially awkward for you. Because the truth is, friends, everyone evangelizes. Everyone has some version of good news. Everyone believes and proclaims some kind of gospel. Everyone has something that lights the fuse of joy in their lives and that they naturally share with others. That's why you don't just attend that concert. You Instagram it. That's why you start dating that guy or that girl and you update your, your social media status because you talk about the things that are important to you. You talk about the things that you love. Whatever it is, your sports team, your favorite band, your kids, your new workout routine, whatever it is, this is why we proclaim the gospel. That's why we talk about Jesus, because he brings us love and joy and life, and he changes everything. We open our mouths and we proclaim the word because God is a speaking God. You realize that throughout the scriptures, God creates by his word. Genesis 1-1, how does God create? And God spoke. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let there be dry land, and there was dry land. And God said, let there be oceans, and there were oceans. And God said, let there be killer whales, and there were killer whales. And God said, let there be, let there be galaxies, and there were galaxies. And God said, let there be subatomic particles, and there were subatomic particles. God spoke it and he created it, creates by his word, and God recreates by his word. God brings new life by his word. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, John 1, 14, that word that created all things, that word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. God makes all things by his word, and God makes all things new by his word. And so when God wants to make all things new, he doesn't send us out with gimmicks or strategies or even good advice for living. He sends us out with good news. He sends us out with something to proclaim that he has done. Look specifically at what we proclaim. Jesus says, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed. Now, the word repent is possibly the most misunderstood word in the entire Bible. Because here's what most people think of when they hear the word repent. They think penance. They think penance. They, here's what I mean by penance. I mean, I've done something bad, and now I need to do something good to make up for it. And that's the default mode in which we all live. 
every single one of us in this room, that is our default setting. We are trying to justify ourselves. Whether you are religious or not, your default setting is one of penance because we desperately want to convince ourselves that we're okay. I'm not that bad of a person. I'm not perfect. Man, look at what a good parent I am. Look how much money I give to charity. Look how religious I am. So we try to become more moral or more generous or more religious or more socially conscious or more fit or more whatever, and we paint this veneer of morality and health over our souls, but our hearts are still dead. That's penance. But repentance is so much deeper. Repentance is so much more liberating. Repentance is a complete change of mind. A whole new way of seeing ourselves and of seeing God and of seeing the world around us. It means that we turn from our attempts to rule our own lives and we trust Jesus as king. It means that we no longer see ourselves as the center of the universe, but we see Jesus as the center of the universe. It means we stop trying to be our own gods and we trust God to be God. It means we stop trying to justify ourselves with our own attempts at self-righteousness and we trust the death and resurrection of Jesus to make us right with God. We turn to him and we receive what he offers and he says that he offers the forgiveness of sins. I want you to hear this today. Jesus doesn't do halfway forgiveness. Jesus offers full forgiveness of sins because some of us in this room, we're still trying to justify ourselves, still living under guilt and shame and condemnation, still trying to prove yourself to God or to your parents or to your spouse or maybe even to yourself. And I want you to hear Jesus died for all of your sins the ones from your distant past and the ones from this morning, the ones you feel comfortable confessing in your missional community and the ones that you try to hide from everyone, including yourself. You don't have to prove yourself to God because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is good news. That is the kind of news that changes everything. And Jesus says, this good news will be proclaimed, he says, to all nations, verse 47, beginning from Jerusalem. Not just for one little slice of people, not just for one ethnic group. Jesus was a Jewish man. Jesus was a Jewish Messiah, but his salvation is not just for the Jews. It is for people of every tribe and tongue and nation. Sometimes when we as Christians start talking about global missions, we forget the fact that we don't just take the gospel to the nations. We are the nations. Like unless, unless you're Jewish, you are the nations. I am the nations. We have been brought into God's family, and now he sends us out to welcome others into his family. We have been blessed so that we can be a blessing to others. That's the impulse for global missions. The impulse for global missions is not we are insiders and other people are outsiders. The impulse for global mission is that we were all outsiders. We're all alienated from God, and God has brought us into his family. He has brought us into his kingdom by the death and resurrection of Jesus, and now he wants to use us to welcome other people who speak different languages, who live in different parts of the world, who look different from us. He wants to welcome the people of every tribe and tongue and nation into his family. 
We've got to be honest about the fact that the Western church has not always done this well. There have been times when, when global missions has been nothing less than a thinly veiled excuse for colonialism. And even today, sometimes I hear American Christians talk about global missions as if we're like the great white hope of the world or something like that. But the fact is, that if you open your eyes and if you look at Christianity around the world, the places where Christianity is growing fastest and where it is most vibrant are not in Western countries. And the strongest churches are not quote-unquote white churches. Christianity is growing fastest among non-white people in the global south and the east. It is spreading like wildfire in places like Iran and China and all throughout the African continent. And so this is not some attempt to export Western values or to come in as some sort of American saviors. Because the fact is, friends, there's only one savior and he grew up in the Middle East. Christianity is growing around the world. And American Christianity is just a small minority when it comes to what God is doing in the world. And yet, and yet it is important for us to realize that Christians in America specifically do make up a highly privileged minority. As Western Christians, we have experienced unparalleled privilege compared to the rest of the world and compared to the rest of the church throughout history. And so the question we need to ask is, how am I stewarding my privilege for the good of the nations? How am I stewarding my privilege for the good of the nations? How are you stewarding your economic privilege for the good of the nations? Because you might not think of yourself as wealthy, but most of us are extravagantly wealthy compared to, to folks around the world. So how are we stewarding our economic privilege for the good of the nations? How are you stewarding your educational privilege, your vocation, your profession? Like, like Diana was talking about training, preparing to be able to take the message and the mercy of Jesus to the nations. We just welcomed back Hannah Welch after some time in, in Nicaragua doing that as well. Some of you have, have medical skills or educational training or, or professional skills that would open the door for you to take the gospel to places that I would never be able to get into as a pastor. And here's the thing, this actually isn't just about going to other countries. This isn't just about a stamp in your passport. How are you stewarding your privilege for the good of the nations here? I look around our church right now. We have families in our church that have opened their homes to kids who have been separated from their parents at the border. Right now, we have folks like, like Seth and Jackie Morales working to help folks from all over the world find employment. We have, we have people like Alex Grayson teaching ESL to kids in public schools. And that, like, tons of you guys are doing this. You guys are doing this in so many different ways. And I just want to encourage you, keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes open. Because in a globalized world, we don't just go to the nations. The nations have come to us. Do you realize Saudi Arabia is one of the most difficult places in the world to go as a Christian missionary, but there are currently hundreds of Saudi students enrolled at IUPUI. We have refugees from all over the world here in Indianapolis. We have folks emigrating to the U.S. and working alongside us in our jobs. What if we welcomed them? What if we invited them over for dinner during the holidays? What if we opened our eyes and realized that people from other nations are here in our neighborhoods? And what if we decided to love them with the message and the mercy of Jesus? How are you stewarding your economic privilege, your educational privilege, your vocational privilege? How are you stewarding your networks and your social capital? And let me ask you finally this, how are you stewarding your access to the gospel? 
Because if you speak English, you are outlandishly privileged compared to the rest of the world. And that's not just true from a socioeconomic standpoint, that is true from the standpoint of access to the gospel. There are over 450 translations of the Bible in English. I have not counted them all, that's according to Wikipedia, so you know it's true. Um, but something like 450 English Bible translations. You, you can download them on your phone while you're sitting here. We have more podcasts and books and blogs and Bible translations than we know what to do with in the English-speaking world. In 2010, this is only nine years ago, 2010, I had the opportunity to, to train a group of pastors in a closed country in Southeast Asia. And this is the kind of country where, like, we went in, I, I preached at an, at an underground house church there, and they, they drove us around the city for an hour and a half under cover of night, and then they, like, shoved us out the side of this van and said, run through that hole in the wall right there. And we did, and there's this whole group of 50 believers there, and I had the opportunity to preach to them. And I had the opportunity to spend some time training pastors in that country. And, and about half the pastors in this group of pastors that I was training were from a minority people group in that country. So these are men, I'm, honestly, these were some of my heroes as I got to know them. Men who were leading churches, men who had been to prison for their faith, men who had lost jobs. Some of them had had their houses burned to the ground for following Jesus. I have 450 translations of the Bible. Do you know how many translations of the Bible they had in their native tongue? Zero. Zero. They had actually learned another language similar to their native language so that they could read the Bible. It was amazing. That month, that, that very month that we were there, the first translation was about to be released in their native tongue. And they were absolutely ecstatic with joy. Man, we talk about privilege. That's privilege. How are you stewarding your access to the good news of forgiveness of sins? How are we stewarding our access to the gospel? How are we taking the blessings God has poured out on us and using them to bless others? Because the fact is that Jesus died for people in Indianapolis and people in Indonesia. And he offers forgiveness to people in Broad Ripple and people in Bhutan. How are you joining in his mission? How are we proclaiming repentance for the forgiveness of sins in our neighborhoods and among the nations? He says you are witnesses of these things. Now, witnesses, really important word. Jesus says, you guys, he's speaking to his first, first followers, you are proclaiming something that you saw with your own eyes. You are proclaiming something that actually happened in history. I died, I rose again. I'm eating a piece of fish in front of you right now. This is one of the things that makes Christianity unique among the religions of the world. It is based squarely on eyewitness testimony. It is based on something that happened at a historical time in a historical place. It is based on the historicity of, of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And without that, there is no Christianity. Now, maybe you got questions about that. Like, I, don't, I don't assume that all of us here today believe that. Every week we have folks in our church here who are asking those questions, who are exploring those questions. And what's so cool, if you read this passage, is actually a lot of them, a lot of Jesus' first followers doubted. They wrestled. Could, is it possible? Could this guy have actually been raised from the dead? So if that's you, like, we want to have a conversation with you. We want to explore those things with you. And ultimately, you'll need to decide for yourself whether you believe this or not. But don't just push it to the periphery. 
Don't just pretend that question doesn't exist. Because that question, the answer to that question, changes everything. If Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, then the whole Christianity thing is useless and ridiculous. And I would even go so far as to say it is evil if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But if it's actually true, if these witnesses are actually telling the truth, if Jesus actually died and rose from the dead, then that changes everything. That's what the church proclaimed 2,000 years ago. That's what we still proclaim today. We proclaim what they witnessed with their eyes because we believe that that gospel changes everything. God's word promises his mission. God's people proclaim his mission. But all of that is useless and helpless without the final component of God's mission. God's spirit empowers his mission. God's spirit empowers his mission. Verse 49 And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus says, don't try to do this without me. Don't try to do this without my power and my presence. At this point, there's something like 120 followers of Jesus. Most of them are poor and uneducated. If you read the Gospels, they are not the sharpest knives in the drawer. And they follow this guy who died and rose again and claims to be the king of the entire universe. And that guy then tells them, go out from Jerusalem and take this message literally to the entire world. How do you respond in that moment? Maybe for some of us, we're like, all right, let's go. Like, it's like the coach gave this great speech at halftime. We're going to go win one for the Gipper. We're going to go charge the field, and we're going to do this thing. Probably most of us, many of them, terrified. What are you talking about, Jesus? This is crazy. And yet this is so fascinating. Jesus says, I'm going to send you out. I'm going to send you out to proclaim this among all nations. I'm going to change the world and change history through you. I'm going to make all things new through you. I am sending you out to do it but you can't do it. You cannot accomplish this mission on your own. So wait until you are clothed with power from on high. Because here's the thing about God's mission. It is God's mission. It is God's mission. He calls us to be a part of it, but he is the one who accomplishes it. God's mission is perfectly designed to fail if God doesn't show up. We need to get that as we start talking about global missions. This mission is perfectly designed to fail if God doesn't show up. And for some of us, that freaks us out, and we're afraid of that loss of control, and we're afraid of that dependency. So so you know what we do? We settle for less than God's mission. Do you know what terrifies me as a pastor? Do you know what keeps me up at night? What terrifies me is not the fear of failure. What terrifies me is the thought that we could succeed at doing good things that are not God things. Because I've seen it. And you probably have too. You can build a big church. You can build a great nonprofit with great social impact. You can do a lot of religious things and you can do it merely by human means. Connect with the right people. Get your branding right, map out your killer strategic plan, and you succeed in doing something that would have worked with or without the power and the presence of God. And I don't want to waste my life doing something like that. I want to be a part of something that can only be explained by power from on high. Friends, that is what God is inviting us into. 
That's what he's inviting me into. That's what he's inviting you into. That's what he is inviting us as a church into. And I don't know exactly what this is going to look like in your life. And if I'm honest, I don't know exactly what this is going to look like in my life. But here's what's so cool. These early followers of Jesus, they didn't know it either. Jesus doesn't come to them and roll out some master strategic plan. He says, wait for the Spirit. Wait to be clothed with power from on high. So that's what they did. They waited and they prayed. And a few weeks later, they're all gathered together in someone's apartment praying. And the Spirit of God fell on them and filled them with holy fire. And he sent them out to proclaim the gospel. And in the process, he turned the world upside down. So no, I don't have all the specifics of exactly what this is going to look like for you or exactly what it's going to look like for us. But let's pray. Let's start there. Let's pray that God would clothe us with power from on high. In your MC this week, pray for wisdom and power to be his witnesses. In your discipleship groups, in your families, with your spouse, with your kids, with your roommate. I had the opportunity to pray with pre-service prayer today. Join us for pre-service prayer before the 9 and before the 11 o'clock service as we pray for God's Spirit to break in, as we pray for power from on high. If you're not sure where to start, let me just recommend a resource to you. Uh, This book is called Operation World. Some of you guys might know it. This is a resource that walks you through the nations of the world and gives you guidance in praying for them. So you can order it on Amazon. You can go to operationworld.org. They actually have uh, daily prayer emails. That's just one resource. Uh, There are other good ones out there. I don't get any commission from Operation World if you sign up for it. Um, But it is a good resource. And whatever you use, whatever you use to guide you or whether you just come to the scriptures and open the scriptures and it moves your heart to pray, pray. Let's pray. Let's pray for holy fire. Let's pray for God to send us out to proclaim his gospel to all nations in the power of the spirit that Jesus has placed inside of us. Over the next three weeks, we're going to be discussing more specifics of, of what this might look in your, like in your life, what this might look like for us as a church. But we are also, in our gatherings, going to be carving out dedicated time to pray. Because we are going to ask God to do something that can only be explained by the power and presence of God. Because here's the thing you see if you read the Bible and if you read the history of the church. God is not looking for the smartest people. God is not looking for the most successful people or the most well-connected people or the wealthiest people. God is looking for the hungry people. God is looking for the hungry people. God is looking for people for whom nothing less than the power and the presence of God will do. Who will cry out, clothe us with power from on high. God, fill us with holy fire. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. So as we come to the Lord's Supper today, I'm going to encourage you, come hungry. Come to this table hungry. Come hungry for the presence of Jesus. That's the whole point of Christmas. The whole point of Christmas is that God became a human being so that he could be present with us. Jesus died and rose again so that he could forgive us of our sins and send his spirit, send his very presence to live inside of us. The apostle Peter says Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous in the place of the unrighteous so that he could bring us to God. 
The body of Jesus was broken for you. The blood of Jesus was shed for you so that he could forgive you of your sins and so that he could bring you into the presence of God and so that he could bring the presence of God to you. So that he could send the promise of the Father. So that he could send the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. So as you come to the table, come hungry. And come and eat. Eat the bread and drink the cup and be reminded this is our only hope. What we see played out here in this simple bread and this simple cup, this is our only hope, and it is the only hope for the world. The body of Jesus is broken for us. The blood of Jesus shed for us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, let me just encourage you to remain seated while others come to take the bread and the cup. That is not because we think that we are superior in any way, shape, or form, but it's because this is a meal for people who are hungry. This is a meal for those of us who have said, I am hungry and I need Jesus and I trust in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of my sins. Jesus died and rose again so that your sins could be forgiven so that you could have the very power and presence of God living inside of you. And so if you've got questions about that and if you want to explore that, we'd love to speak with you after the service. Let's pray. Let's take the Lord's Supper. Lord, we look at our world, the world around us, on a macro level and on a personal level. We look at our own lives. We see so much brokenness, so much brokenness out there, so much brokenness in our own hearts. And we long for it to be made new. We long to be made new personally. We long for you to make this world new. Thank you that you haven't left us to try to figure it out for ourselves. Thank you that you have stepped in. Thank you that you became flesh, Lord Jesus, and you dwelt among us, and you have shown us the glory of the Father full of grace and truth. Thank you that you have done what you promised to do. You have taken our sins. Your body was broken for us. Your blood was shed for us. Thank you that you are doing what you have promised to do. You are sending this gospel to the nations. You sent it to us, and you want to send it through us. And thank you. Thank you that you, you place your spirit inside of us to clothe us with power from on high, to fill us with holy fire. Make us hungry, Lord, because we, we spoil our appetites on so many things that can never satisfy. We, we settle for such pathetic junk food when you offer us the only thing that can satisfy our souls. Your presence inside of us, the body of Jesus broken for us, the blood of Jesus shed for us. That's our hope, and that's the hope of the world, and so we pray that you would bolster that hope inside of us, and that you would send us out to proclaim that hope in the neighborhoods and the nations. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.